I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Bookshop. I'm Alice McCrum and I run, among other things, cultural programming at the American Library in Paris. Obviously, I'm here this evening um, with all of you because we are very excited, kind of as a uh, test event, hybrid event, um, to be at once in London at the London Review Bookshop and simultaneously um, being streamed in Paris. Tonight, I'm delighted to be in conversation to be interviewing Lauren Elkin and Deborah Levy to discuss Simon de Beauvoir's recently discovered, recently translated and recently introduced uh, novel, The Inseparables. Before we get started, two notes. The first note is that about 45 minutes will open up the conversation to your questions in person or on the YouTube link. If you're on YouTube, you can pose a question, just put it in the chat and I will actually receive it on my phone, very exciting. Uh, and the second note is that uh, it's more of a disclaimer from right from the beginning, unfortunately there'll be plot spoilers. So I'm very sorry <laughs> in advance, but we think it's worth it. Um, so Lauren, I'd like to start with you and you're gonna read a passage but to introduce you, and many of you, I imagine, are here, both for Lauren and Deborah, and they don't need introductions. You are an author, a translator, and a longtime Parisienne, upplanted, rerouted in London, and you're going to uh, read to us from your new translation. Cool. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, everyone, for coming tonight, and thank you so much to everybody at the library in Paris. Hello, Miss, <laughs> Miss Paris. Enjoy it. You know, have a have a Kia Royale for me. Um, I'm just going to dive right into the very beginning of The Inseparables. When I was nine years old, I was a good little girl, though this hadn't always been the case. As a small child, the adult's tyranny caused me to throw such tantrums that one of my aunts declared, quite seriously, Sylvie is possessed by a demon. War and religion tamed me. Right away, I demonstrated perfect patriotism by stomping all over my doll because she was made in Germany though I didn't really care for her to begin with. I was taught that God would only protect France if I were obedient and pious, there was no escaping it. The other girls and I would walk through the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, waving banners and singing. I began to pray frequently and I developed a real taste for it. Abbé Dominique, the chaplain at the Collège Adelaide where we went to school, encouraged my ardor. Dressed all in tulle with a bonnet made of Irish lace, I made my first communion. And from that day forward, I set a perfect example for my little sisters. Having heard my prayers, and my father was appointed to a desk job at the Ministry of War because of his heart trouble. That morning, I was especially excited because it was the first day of school. I couldn't wait to get back to the classroom, solemn as a mass, the silence in the hallways, the softened smiles of the teachers in their long skirts and their high-necked blouses, who were often dressed as nurses, since the school had been partially turned into a hospital. Under their white veils with red stains, they resembled saints, and I was overcome when they pressed me to their bosoms. I wolfed down the soup and gray bread which had replaced the hot chocolate and brioche from the pre-war days, and impatiently waited for my mother to finish dressing my sisters. All three of us wore sky blue coats made of real officer serge and cut exactly like military greatcoats. Look, there's even a little martingale at the back, my mother would show her friends, who were admiring or taken aback. My mother held my sister's hands as we left the building. We walked with sadness past Café La Rotonde, which had just opened noisily beneath our window, and which was, Papa said, a hangout for defeatists. <laughs> I found the word intriguing. Defeatists are people who believe that France will lose the war, Papa explained. They should all be shot. I didn't understand. We don't believe what we believe on purpose. Can you really be punished for the things you think? The spies who handed out poison sweets to children or pricked French women with needles full of venom in the metro, obviously they deserve to die. 
but the defeatist baffled me. I didn't bother asking Maman. She always said the same thing as Papa. My little sisters walked slowly. The wrought iron grill of the Luxembourg Gardens seemed to go on forever. Finally, I arrived at the school gate and climbed the front stairs, joyfully trundling my satchel overflowing with new books. I recognized the faint odor of illness mingled with the smell of wax on the freshly polished floors. The teachers kissed me. In the cloakroom, I was reunited with my schoolmates from last year. I didn't have any particular attachments among them, but I liked the noise we all made together. I dawdled in the main hall, looking at the display cases full of old dead things that came here to die a second time. The feathers fell from the stuffed birds. The dried plants turned to dust. The shells lost their shine. When the bell rang, I entered the classroom they called Sainte Marguerite. All the rooms looked the same. The, school, the students sat around an oval table covered in black moleskin, which would be presided over by our teacher. Our mothers sat behind us and kept watch while knitting balaclavas. I went over to my stool and saw the one next to it was occupied by a hollow-cheeked little girl with brown hair whom I didn't recognize. She looked very young. Her serious, shining eyes focused on me with intensity. So you're the best student in the class. I'm Sylvie Lepage, I said. What's your name? André Gallard. I'm nine. If I look younger, it's because I got burned alive and didn't grow much after that. I had to stop studying for a year, but Maman wants me to catch up on what I missed. Can you lend me your notebooks from last year? Yes, I said. André's confidence and rapid, precise speech unnerved me. She looked over me warily. That girl said you're the best student in the class, she said, tilting her head a little at Lisette. Is that true? I often come in first, I said, modest. I stared at André, with her dark hair falling straight down around her face and an ink spot on her chin. It's not every day that you meet a little girl who's been burned alive. Um, I think it's worth keeping in mind just as we get started, and I, I needed to write it on my own notes, that um, we'll be talking about Simone de Beauvoir and her friendship with the real-life Elizabeth Zaza Lacroix. <coughs> and in the, in the novel, Sylvie uh, is Sim Simone and Zaza is André. So just, if, if it feels interchangeable, just stay with us and I'm sure we'll mix them all up. Um, Lauren, in your translation note, you write that the story of the inseparables is the story of, at once, Beauvoir's close friendship with Zaza, as well as Zaza's exuberant life and early death. There's the plot twist. Um, and you write that the story would be familiar to uh, close readers of Beauvoir's work. We might find it in her diaaries, mm -hmm. uh, in her correspondences, certainly in her autobiography. And before we wade in into the particulars of the plot, I wanted to think about another quote of Beauvoir's, which is that there is no divorce between philosophy and life. Every living step is a philosophical choice to think about what seeds of philosophy or of life are sown for you in this novel and amid much access to kind of new material about de Beauvoir what can reading the inseparables tell us about this figure that we couldn't find elsewhere and that we perhaps haven't known before hmm. oh that's a really good question um you know, it's, it's funny. One thing that I noticed while I was translating this book and, and thinking about how to bring it over into English was how restrained it is yeah. that, you know, another maybe a weaker minded novelist might be really tempted to get in all this philosophy and like have disquisitions on what it means to believe in God and lose your faith. And, mm. you know, the one of the characters would um, go on to become this great phenomenologist, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and Beauvoir knows that by this point, so maybe she'd work in some phenomenology. Um, but she really is, is amazingly restrained in terms of holding back any kind of editorialization. And she just kind of goes straight to the point of telling the story. There's no subplots. There's, like, nothing else happening on the side. It's just... Sylvie and André and their friendship and what happens as they grow up. And so I think we have to still see it as a deeply philosophical novel in spite of the fact that it's incredibly, uh, what's, what's the word? I'm trying to think of a synonym for restrained. But in spite of the fact that she's so disciplined about not veering off. Um, so I think that tells us a lot about Beauvoir as a novelist as well as a philosopher, that she really sees the two as kind of 
not, not only inextricably linked, but the same practice. To novelize is to philosophize. To write is to sort of spin theories about the world and life and, and who we are in it. And that can take different forms. And so in this case, it's taken the form of this, um, the story of these two, two young women. So I don't know, in terms of what it tells us about Beauvoir that we can't get elsewhere, I think, you know, I could talk about this for a really long time. I think that that's a great, such a rich question. Um, and I'm trying in my mind to decide like how to, how to focus because there's the extra literary aspect, the kind of paratextual aspect, which is the fact that she wrote this novel after she'd done, um, her massive epic, Les Mandarins, The Mandarins, which won the Goncourt in 1954. She'd, you know, gotten this massive epic story of these people after the Second World War, kind of struggling to see who was going to who was going to inherit France after um, you know when it had become a republic once again. Was it going to be the communists, the centrists, the Gaullists? You know who into whose hand would the countries fall? Who should run it? How should we live together in this in this new world? And she turns to this very intimate story that she tried to tell a few times before unsuccessfully. Um, and she hadn't yet written her memoirs. Those would come four years later. And she, she writes it kind of in a feverish state in a month or so. Like she writes it really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And then she gives it to Sartre and says, what do you think of this? And Sartre apparently, reportedly, Beauvoir said, held his nose. Mm. And she said, okay, I guess I'm not going to publish this if, you know, my partner and, you know, man I trust in all aspects of my life and, and my, my writing life has literally held his nose. He thinks it's not good. He th- it's not passable. Mm-hmm. She's going to put it away. So I think that that tells us actually a lot about Beauvoir's relationship with Sartre yep. and her willingness to um, give in to his opinion or to cede to his opinions, to obey his opinions. So yep. I think that's, you know, coming from someone that we think of as this great feminist. I mean, she was a great feminist, but she thought really carefully about telling the story and how she was going to do it. And, you know, she doesn't listen to him in terms of putting it away forever. She writes about it in her memoirs a few years later. But she's she's kind of doubtful about how this story should come across and whether she'd managed to do it. But she puts it in a drawer. And then it's found many years later by her adopted daughter, Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir, who yes. published this um, a couple of years ago in French on its own because mm. she believed that it should come out. Unlike Sartre, Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir did not hold her nose. I think we're going to, um, thank you, Lauren, we're going we're gonna to return to this idea of how, basically how to write about such a close friendship and then, mm-hmm. you know, as a result, such a great loss mm-hmm. in her life. And we, we got a kind of taste of the France that we're in from your reading. You know, it's restrained, it's religious, it is repressive for women. And so, Deborah, I want to turn to you. You're a novelist, essayist, playwright, and poet. You work in many mediums. You wrote the introduction to Lauren's fantastic translation, both the fantastic, the book, which is available for purchase after the event. It's also fantastic. Um, thinking broadly about the inseparables as a glimpse into early, early 20th century French history, you note that in a world, and Lauren, you, you note this too, in a world of militant bourgeois Catholicism, one that flattens and controls, women cannot vote, they're coerced into marriage, they spend much of their time attending to husbands and to children, and yet we meet Sylvie and André, they're forthright, they're confident, they talk at length about property, justice and equality, they do cartwheels, they ride horses, (laughs) they mock their teachers, and this is a great um, quote, this is Sylvie observing of André, all around me perfumed women ate cake and talked about the cost of living. Remain, keep that in your head. Um, From the day she was born, André was fated to be like one of them, but she was nothing like them. And in some ways, the apotheosis of this book, one apotheosis might be, and certainly the tragedy, both on the page and in life, is that André dies just before her 22nd birthday um, from encephalitis. And in real life, Beauvoir considers Zaza's death to be a crime. She describes it as a spiritualist crime. She talks about it as a murder, an execution. An assassination. An assassination. Mm. Deborah, for you, and maybe you'd like to also say, Lauren, who kills Zaza? (laughs) Or what? (laughs) I believe Beauvoir. I mean, first of all, I'm absolutely in awe of Lauren's translation. Mm. It's so alive. It's, you know, those, those two girls are completely vital 
They have, by, by which I mean, you know, they have incredible vitality. And um, this is really important because one of them is crushed. And so if right from the off, the novelist and the translator don't set up what's at stake, which is that, um, that uh, you know, in, in the words of um, Beauvoir in the, in, in the second sex, <clears throat> her wings are cut and she's blamed for not being able to fly. So um, mm. that, that sort of um, accumulation, despite it being um, <clears throat> very paired prose and very economic and, and all of that, Lauren has, has really attended to the liveliness to, of, of, of these girls, because otherwise there would be very little at stake. Why, you know, so, so congratulations. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> really, congratulations, Simone. You know, she put it there for me to bring out in English. But it's hard to do. She, I yeah. mean, Beauvoir can be quite Latin, mm. in fact, in her in her novels. Mm. Um, and then, just to speak mm. to your first question mm. to Lauren, mm. I mean, she's embodying mm -hmm. embodying in in the short mm -hmm. novel the, the the second sex, right? Mm. I, I know you know this, but but the the idea that you know, man. When, could have an expanded life of yeah. transcendence mm -hmm. and women were to have a miniature life and that these these two girls yeah. were going to were going to go for an expanded life and as she says in the in the second sex um young girls could um throw themselves into things with ardor because they had not yet been robbed of their transcendence. And she uses mm. this word transcendence mm. a lot. I mean, maybe we can later on, you could explain actually, open that up a bit, that, that mm. word transcendence. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> My question was, so you talked about the cutting of wings. Yes. In the case of Zaza, this is more than the cutting of wings, this is her death at 21 years Who old. Who killed her? Who killed her? Is but, it Catholicism? <clears throat> is it her relationship with her mother? Is it her schooling? Yeah, she is. You know, as you say, she embodies the second sex. She's the most exuberant, most bright, most mm. brilliant. Well, can I share some thoughts with you oh, please, yeah. about that? Mm -hmm. um, society kills um, Zaza. Yeah. Um, all the things that Beauvoir says killed her: Catholicism, um, her mother's complicity yeah. and oppression. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, she had absolutely no free time yeah. in life. She came mm -hmm. from this big family to play her violin, to think, to experiment with, 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 with her thoughts, mm -hmm. which, which all, all children need. And so when they mm -hmm. found each other, they could be less intellectually lonely. Let's, let's, mm -hmm. let's just say that for the moment. But what I wanted to share with you is that I think that actually André is quite a two-dimensional character in Beauvoir's book, um, there's quite a lot missing for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it, so, so who killed her? Yeah. Th there's a suggestion that she has a sort of death wish, yeah. or maybe just an end, she, she just wants to put an end to feelings that she can't endure. Um, and they are the swing, mm -hmm. yeah. that, that, yeah. yeah. So she, she, yeah. she just like kids do, you know, really take huge risks on swings until they're going to um, fall off. And then there's that weird scene, sorry about these spoilers, but it really, but they're really not, uh, because Lauren's translation is so brilliant mm. and, and the book is so interesting, where André, uh, to answer your question, she's trying to get out yeah. of a family outing and she's, they, she's chopping wood and she, to get out of it, mm. she, she slams the axe into her foot. And yeah. um, Beauvoir deals with that in two paragraphs. Um, the writer in me just doesn't accept that. <laughs> I just don't think that's two paragraphs. <laughs> so... I, I was... That goes back to Lauren's, mm. you know, this is the question of restraint. Well, I, right. I, that's what I was going to say. I think it's so much from Sylvia's perspective. Mm. We don't have a single moment where, where, where Sylvia's not there, entirely in the first person, 
And and Andre is such a mystery to her. You know, she's mm. a fascinating mystery, but she ultimately just does not understand mm. why she does the things she does, why she makes the choices she makes, the axe thing, you know, and she has limited axe, access to her. Thing. The axe thing. There's the moment That's with the axe, in itself. you know. But like the she has such limited access to Andre mm. because the mother is so controlling and really doses out very, you know, parsimoniously the moments that, that Sylvie gets to spend with André, because remember, the mom really doesn't like right. Sylvie. The mother, André's mother, has cottoned on to the fact that there's something a little <laughs> funny going on between these two girls that seems to be excessive for a normal, what she would think of as a normal female relationship. And I'm not suggesting anything funny-funny, but I'm also suggesting mm. something funny-funny. Mm. Um, because, you know, you Sylvie know. is in love ultimately yeah she's in love and how do we qualify that love it's very complicated right. but my point is that i think because <laughs> we get so little of andre that's why it's in two paragraphs because that's all that sylvie has been given is you know the temporal equivalent of two paragraphs mm-hmm. i think before needed if i dare say this <laughs> to give that more time mm. i don't mean more naturalistic time mm-hmm but more thought, and, I, and she's obviously uh, entirely capable of it, so I'm, I just wondered what the mm. restrictions mm. were. Maybe, maybe there, were, there were living, you know, mm. there was a sort of living family and all of that, mm. but, you know, if um, I had seen a, a, uh, my friend take an axe and plunge it into her leg, <laughs> you, and, I, and I was to write about it, you can be sure that it would be too, more than, than two paragraphs <laughs> and nightmares and um, all, all sorts of things. So she's, and, and you are right, Lauren, she's, she's sort of brutal. She's making her point. She's mm-hmm. didactic. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. She, she just right. sort of leaves it there and you, she says, well, mm-hmm. Yes, you, you can imagine the rest. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But there is something else, to answer your question, who, yes. Killed, yes. Um, yes. who killed her, which is, the, which I suggest mm-hmm. in the introduction, I don't mm-hmm. know whether you felt this mm-hmm. when you were translating it, mm-hmm. which is that Zaza, to, to, to make that break from her family, mm-hmm and God, mm-hmm. and bourgeois respectability. That's a huge risk. My mother took that mm-hmm. risk. She comes from a family very like, like that. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe Zaza just didn't have the courage. Mm-hmm. So one doesn't have to be judgmental about that. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's another paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> I, one thing I wonder about as, as I'm listening to you is this is a first draft as far as we know yes, it, we don't good. know how much she worked on it we don't know if this was the finished version that she would have published right. I allowed myself to take certain liberties <laughs> editorially as like, I was working through it Yeah, like what? oh like um, there were a lot of there was a lot of like direct um, direct like speech so she said, I said, she said, I said, and each with its own line. And some of that I transformed into indirect speech. So like if André said something, and this is not a literal example because I think can't think of one, but if André said, I'm hungry, mm-hmm. I would, tra- you know, I'm hungry, André said, I would transform that into mm-hmm. André said she was hungry mm-hmm. because it seemed like there was a lot of dialogue and it was getting a little bit, as you say, let in. Um, and so to keep it changing a little bit to give the sense that they are talking to each other a lot yeah. mm-hmm. but to not always be like I said she said I said she said and possibly to underline the idea that this is an intellectual relationship and so they mm-hmm. are kind of the, the lines between speech and being inside their heads are blurring mm-hmm. exactly. they're having conversations yeah. with each other that go beyond the words beyond the page I think you know thinking about this idea of translation um, Deborah mentioned this idea of duty Home, homework in French, mm. this word is devoir, and mm-hmm. you point out in your introduction this is essentially you can't translate it into mm-hmm. English because the meaning changes over the course mm-hmm. of their life. You also point out, I don't know if there are any French speakers in the room, um, that they refer to each other and they call each other, mm-hmm. they use the vu, which is the, the formal mm-hmm. um, form of addressing somebody. So, I mean, today in France you would use vu for your teachers and and strangers, but the idea that very yeah. close friends... Can you talk about devoir and vu as untranslatable yeah. and somehow as an insight into what's going on? Yeah. Well, I would, I would mention that I believe there still to be 
some very, very, yes, very posh true. French people who are married to one another who still voyage each other. All parents, um, you know, children yeah. to their parents, or certainly grandparents. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely yeah. still there, and yeah. it's a marker of class. Yeah. But it's also a marker, I think, of how these these young girls just kind of respect each other. And it's a sign that, you know, it's almost like they're colleagues <laughs> in, like, you know, the business of life or something. Yeah. And so it's, you know, they're very formal with each other when they're about 16 or something. And um, Sylvie goes and visits André at her house, you know, her, her country pile in, in the southwest. Um, and she gets off the train and they like shake hands and the little sisters, André's little sisters are like, why didn't you embrace each other? And André says something like, sometimes there are friends, you know, with whom we just shake hands. (laughs) And so they, you know, it doesn't mean we don't love each other. It just means that we are, you know, it's a sign of respect or something. So yeah, I think in terms of translating that I had to both capture, as you were saying, Deborah, like the vitality of their individual personalities and the way that they kind of sparked off each other while also maintaining um, the fact that this takes place in another time and there are different social mores. And that is one of them. There is a kind of restraint. Um, Again, that word, I don't know why I'm saying it so much tonight, but something that, um, like a moment that I think really illustrates that is when, again, on this one of the visits that Andre makes to, to that Sylvie makes to Andre's family home, they're in the basement, which is where they store all of their kitchen things. And there's this massive list, which I sometimes read, but I won't, you know, in the interest of time, of all the different kinds of like soup tureens and serving pieces and like kinds of spoons, mm. and um, it's it goes on for like half a page. Um, and that was a lot of fun to translate because I had to go looking up, you know, what all these weird arcane pieces of fancy silverware were. God, I can't, I can't remember what like the French was. That I, have I, fr- I have the French. Yeah, it would, it would take me too long okay. to go back and forth. But it's like everything was made of cast iron, earthenware, stoneware, porcelain, tin, aluminium. There were cooking pots, frying pans, saucepans, skillets, cauldrons, casseroles, soup bowls, serving platters, <laughs> tureens, tumblers, colanders, mincers, mold, mills, molds, and mortars. An endless variety of cu- bowls, cups, glasses, champagne, flutes, and coops. Plates, saucers, sauce bowls, jars, jugs, pitchers, carafes. Does every kind of spoon, ladle, fork, and knife really have its own particular purpose? Do we have so many different needs to satisfy? This clandestine subterranean world must turn up on the surface of the earth for enormous and discerning dinner parties that I knew nothing about. <laughs> but she hated the di- she hated the domestic, right. yeah. so she has that great line. I think I forget where mm. she took to housework like other women took to drink. <laughs> That's amazing. See her eyes sort of <sighs> making that list of. Um, <laughs> You know, and I, I hear that list. I think of like the male counterparts. You know, they're like they're the same list, but it's like Socrates, Aristotle, Pope. Mm. Shit, you know, mm-hmm. just like a totally different mm-hmm. way of organizing. Yeah, the world. exactly. Mm. But yeah, that 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 list I think kind of makes um, material the difference between their social spheres mm. and and a reason for the persisting distance between them. No matter how much they might adore one another, mm. there's still this very social kind of. You know, they're both posh, but André is super posh. Um, I want to turn to Deborah, uh, your long... So you're basically citing the second sex from memory at this point. <laughs> um, you're, as an artist, <laughs> as a writer, Deborah Voir has been a, a, a real guiding light for you. And in your introduction to The Inseparables, you write... In every decade of my life since my 20s, I have been awed, confused, intrigued, and inspired by Beauvoir's attempt to live with meaning pleasure and purpose, be loved, be admired, be necessary, be somebody, she insisted in her autobiography. And yet, in your recent... Excellent. Hmm. I mean, it's just excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, in your recent autobiography, uh, The Cost of Living, you write that ultimately, I was not Simone de Beauvoir after all. No. (laughs) Well, before you wrote the book. No, I had got off the train at a different stop marriage and stepped onto a different platform. Children, she was my muse, but I certainly was not hers. Yet we had bought the ticket for the same train. The destination was head towards a freer life. So you're writing about 
uh, your life in the second half of the 20th century. Mm. You were describing, I imagine, um, the changes in your life in the early 21st century. We find ourselves in the middle of 2022, you know, within the kind of caveat of Western democracies. Do you feel that as women, or indeed people who identify as women, are there still social constraints to um, Beauvoir's call to be somebody? Yes. What are they? I think, I, I think that... Um, I think what Beauvoir was very good at was showing the mechanisms of oppression mm -hmm. and repression, mm. right? And that's, that doesn't go away. I mean, you, you know, there, there, there are advances. And she also showed um, with brutal, with, with real sort of astute, brutal sentences mm. that um, I, I can imagine her writing that and, and sort of thinking... Um, gosh, do I really believe that? Mm. And unfortunately, I do. You know, um, she, she, she was very good at how mysterious it is to want to suppress and oppress women so persistently. Mm. Um, that interested her and it interests me. Mm. I think any kind of, uh, sort of does, when you cannot separate yourself from your desire, to oppress somebody and, you know, something interesting is going on. And that was a very long book. That wasn't <laughs> two, two paragraphs. So, so I, think it's, um, I think it's entirely relevant, yes. Yeah. So what, are, what, what is the 21st century equivalent of Catholicism, bourgeois life, imposing mothers, although they still exist, of course? <laughs> well, I mean, look at Afghanistan. I mean, uh, our, our darling girls can't go to school. Um, why is education so so threatening? Well, we know why, because you're going to educate yourself into uh, a bigger, expanded world. You're going to leave, you, you, you will have more tools at your disposal to, to process not only oppression, but the ways in which you've internalized yeah, right, it. Right. Lauren, mm. same question to you. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, in my two countries, my my initial country, America, they're about to overturn Roe versus Wade. So right, they just right. want to control women's bodies, and that still exists. Mm -hmm. um, we're about to be just jettisoned back to before 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and in my adopted country of France, I don't know, it's still, you know, they're trying to keep prostitution illegal, the G uh, GPA, which surrogacy is illegal, you can't, you know, use your body to, if someone needs a baby and they can't make a baby and you want to help them make a baby, that's illegal in France. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone can have access to IVF in France, you know, gay couples are not allowed to, to practice IVF in France. So there's all kinds of mechanisms by which the states have found ways to control how women can, you know, treat their bodies. Having an abortion in France, even, is not actually, you know, it's not under threat there the way that it is in America, but it's super difficult. The, the hoops they make you jump through, <clears throat> they make you talk to a therapist, right. you know, like to say, like, really, I know what I'm doing, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, they make you look at the, um, the what's it called, the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. You have to consider it and say, I still <laughs> want to end this pregnancy, you know? It's ultimately just still a very Catholic country. So, right. yeah, these are right. just a few of the the ways in which this is still happening. And so then, I suppose, as a hopeful um, follow-up question, what can we learn from either your book, Deborah, or The Inseparables about mm. how to, as, as Simone de Beauvoir put it, be somebody? Mm, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't put an axe in your foot. <laughs> Find a more <laughs> constructive, less harmful, self-harmful way. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you look at autobiographical writing, so if you look at something like Maya Angelou's mm. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, mm. I mean, there, mm. our female protagonist, she has to battle racism, she has to battle misogyny, and she isn't defeated, mm. she isn't crushed. In, in my view, Beauvoir was, uh, ha having written this, you know, massive book, to, uh, the mandarins and the second mm -hmm. sex. Well, well, here's a chance to to embody. I, I use that word again. This philosophy. So that's what she does. She 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 has to embody. She has to make these girls lively and valuable. She has to convince us that they that they are valuable, and and especially that Zaza is 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 someone who. Um, 
was valuable and, and, and assassinated by society. And actually, I think that um, you, you asked earlier, what does Beauvoir show us that we like in this book that we might not see elsewhere? I think her anger, that end is mm. very angry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. Tell us about yeah. the end. Um, well, maybe Lauren can. Maybe you shouldn't read it. Actually, well, mm. it's the end when 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 Zaza dies, and um, and I won't give a spoiler here in this excellent translation. <laughs> but but um, Andre comes. Andre is dead, and Sylvie comes to the funeral, and she notes. She she she, she notices a few things. I'm not going to give it away. Mm. Anyone can feel. A, a, a real visceral anger that she doesn't, that she can't employ mm-hmm. in the second sex. That yeah. has to be uh, rightly mm-hmm. an, another tone. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No, I'm, I'm taking in everything that Deborah's saying. Um, I'm thinking that it's a cold fury at the end of the book, that it's a steady fury because she's told the story before and she'll tell the story again and she keeps trying to find the right shape for it. Yeah. And I think there is a searching there, you know, to, to find a way to be angry without being alienating because, you know, we learn as women that we have to be, you know, pleasing and, 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 and keep our feelings in moderation. Otherwise people stop listening, um, or definitely stop reading. And maybe there are a couple of moments in this book where she lets go of that a bit. And maybe that's why Sartre held his nose. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think the question of anger in Beauvoir's work is, is a really rich one. I really love reading her youth diaries. I can't remember if they're in English. Do you, either of you know? The Cahiers de Jeunesse? They came out in France like 15 years ago or something and I just like devoured them. They are so good. They're like Sontag's um, youth diaries, which came out a few years after, but much more like this is what I'm reading and obviously, a, you know, a testament from different, different culture, different time. Um, and she's a lot more honest in, in those novels about what she's feeling and what she, in those novels, in those diaries about what she's thinking and what she's going through. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like Beauvoir before she's learned to, to dissemble um, and to be pleasing because it's her own kind of private space. So I, I really recommend reading those if they're, if you can read French. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're in English. I have to check on that. She, what age is she? Mm-hmm. She's very, very, I mean, from like, I think pretty young, like 13 or thereabouts, mm-hmm. and then it's all through high school and um, university, and then her the aggregation that she did afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they go <clears throat> there are different diaries that go up further, um, but the youth ones when she's she's like in love with her cousin, um, and she re- she has all these lists of things she wants to read, and she's just very um, passionate and no holds barred, and you know you get a glimpse of that in in what I read, but but you get more of it mm-hmm. in the diaries. Mm-hmm. Please, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just interesting, and I sort of. On, on another level, that this this relationship between these two girls, I think we meet them at nine mm-hmm. and yeah. through to 21. So let's just go back to nine. One of them is going to write the second sex. <laughs> you know, you're nine and you're talking about life. And the, actually, actually, she's going to go on to write the second sex. Yeah. And the other one is going to go on to die. And Beauvoir must have thought about that. I mean, mean, obviously, sort of couldn't, couldn't capture whatever it was that she needed to say about that. Because, you know, she writes about her Zaza and the dutiful daughter um, and in her autobiographies and again here. So maybe it's just one of those incredible things about writers that you have to just keep writing and writing and writing Mm -hmm. until one day you nail it. Mm. So I I think, and we're going to turn to your questions, uh, both on YouTube, hello YouTube, please post your questions, uh, and in person. Just, I think, a final thought and a final question, which Mm. is that, um, and this is, I'm citing you, Deborah, citing Proust in your book, (laughs) another big French thinker, um, that ideas, so this idea of like insurmountable grief, what to do with it, how to express it, tries over the course of her life to put it in various, as you know, as we mentioned, novels, short story collections, doesn't work, we find it here, and maybe, um, one way that this grief has been expressed is through, that was kind of the implication of my first question, through her subsequent work. And this, I think, is a lovely um, 
possible final quote to end on. Um, and it's, I think it's a hopeful one because we've all experienced grief to some degree. And this is a, yeah, just, it's a lovely way to think about grief in relation to art. So Proust writes, um, ideas come to us as successes to grieves and grieves at the moment when they change into ideas lose some part of their power to injure the heart. Excellent. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Can we have a big round of applause, please? <laughs> Hi. Um, one of the things makes me very sad is how little of Simone de Beauvoir's work is available for English readers now, mm-hmm. because... Um, in prep for this, I did reread Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, and it's the only volume of her autobiography which is currently still in print. Mm. It's a Penguin mm. classic. Mm. The translation is by James Kirkup, which was mm. in the 50s, soon after the book was published, you know. Mm. So I don't know why her work isn't available, because I can remember, you know, in my 20s, how influential her autobiography was and all those lovely penguin editions mm-hmm. with the blue Matisse uh, figures mm-hmm. on the front. And, and now you can only find the other three volumes, you know, by going online, mm-hmm. finding them secondhand. And mm-hmm. it seems to me she's out of vogue somewhat. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's what, what it's presumably, I'm not sure, in France, but certainly here her work mm-hmm. is quite unavailable, mm-hmm. I would say. I, I, it is a shame. I don't know quite what to say to that. I don't know why the, the other three volumes are, are out of print. I sort of didn't realize they were. I have, I did recently mm-hmm. try to buy them because I have them in French, obviously, because I'm, you know, yeah. Because you're a Parisian. No, just I forget what the, the you have some word in this country for someone who's a big geek. Uh, boffin is that the word? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a bibliophile, so I have them in French. So, I, but I did recently get them, and you're right, they were secondhand, and I, it didn't even occur to me that I couldn't get them. Yeah. Hmm. What can we do about this? We must this? do something about that. <laughs> I, have, I have a suggestion. Which has got a, some contacts. There's a great new biography um, of Beauvoir by Kate Kirkpatrick. Mm-hmm which I would highly recommend mm. as a revisionist, um, mm-hmm. kind of re-look at her life and definitely her relationship mm-hmm. to, to Sartre. Yeah. And there's so, a new book out by Sky Cleary, I think, mm. called How to Be Authentic. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's very soon. So maybe she's having a moment and we can kind of shepherd those works back into print. I don't know. Mm. Or retranslated. And retranslated. If anybody a needs a translator. Mm. I don't know where we'd okay. find one of those. <laughs> Not in this room. <laughs> um, okay, we have some questions on... The reason I'm looking at my phone is because I'm getting questions, not because I'm texting. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of questions about her relationship to Sartre. Yeah, this is a good one. So this is from Alex. Um, if Beauvoir was fighting for women... It's quite, you know, punchy. If Beauvoir was fighting for women, why did she adhere to Sartre's opinion of her work and put it away for so long? So I think... We'll just re-say that. If Beauvoir was fighting for women, why did she adhere to Sartre's opinion of her work and put it away for mm. so long? Which is to say, how can she at once mm-hmm. be in this complicated relationship mm-hmm. with a dominating man on the one hand and also be writing mm-hmm. the canonical feminist text yeah. of the 20th yeah, yeah. century? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like one of the major questions yeah. <laughs> for, for Beauvoir scholarship mm-hmm. is how, how to reconcile the relationship that she had with Sartre, which clearly made her very unhappy at moments during her life and mm. wasn't even necessarily what she wanted. So, you know, I, I'm not her biographer, so I think it's a very complex question that I probably should just refer you to Kate Kirkpatrick. And... <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because it's, it's conjecture. Um, mm. I would imagine the writer, Beauvoir, maybe wasn't quite sure mm. of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, yeah. so you said it was a first draft. Mm-hmm. That's a first draft. That's a pretty good yeah. first draft. So that if your trusted yeah. intellectual companion uh, just says no, mm. you, you, she didn't destroy it. She, she, she put it away. And then for, for Sartre, I think maybe female friendship. Well, was, yeah, I think it says more about Sartre. It's a serious. <laughs> as a serious subject and so we could sort of go into Ferrante yeah. here too couldn't we you know Simone knew it was a serious subject oh, and she didn't she didn't she didn't destroy it yeah. it's and, and 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 it's published thank you three of you it's been a really splendid discussion but what I found particularly striking was 
constant reference to how pared down the book is, and indeed that's my experience of reading it. And at the same time, here we are rather bombarded by one Sally Rooney in interiority. And actually what you were able to bring out, and indeed it's there in the text, was something other than interiority and yet so incredibly revealing about emotions. Sorry, I've made a statement rather than a question, <laughs> but can I say, perhaps comment on mm. interiority or otherwise in de Beauvoir? Mm, yeah. I mean, she's writing at such a different moment in time, right? I mean, you have, like, the, the nouveau roman in France has, has risen to the fore in the late 40s and 50s, and that's really kind of anti-interiority. Um, so I think that that has probably had some impact on Beauvoir's own kind of novelistic making. Um, I mean, modernism is, is, you know, obviously in some cases very much about being being um, sort of plunged into the the mind of a particular character and can be quite you know I'm thinking of Dorothy Richardson's pilgrimage which is does stream of consciousness over like nine volumes is it nine volumes but there's also something very kind of stark about modernism which has just happened in the 20s and 30s so that's very you know like I think the mm. the the kind of specter of modernism and what you can do with a limited interior kind of access is probably much more available to Beauvoir in 1954 than Sally Rooney and you know whenever she was writing those books I think you know <laughs> don't don't get me started but you know I love Sally Rooney I will say that but like literature now I think is a little too far from modernism and needs to kind of have uh, we need to have check back in with those writers and think about um, how, yeah how we might break out of form and rethink mm. our approach to narrative Anyway, mm. but Deborah's the real expert there. Well, well she's, she's looking at um, the mechanism by which uh, her friend is crushed and defeated. Uh, so it's an immensely political book, but don't underestimate how much interiority the writer would have had to have sort of accessed and process before before she wrote that 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 first draft, you know, and actually, as I, I'm going back to that axe again, mm. I think we could have we, we could do with 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 mm. a little more dimension, a little more unfolding. I know it's didactic, but um, it's it stays with me. It's not that um, it's, it's that I believe she has more to say. That's what mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not that I want. Um, it's not that I have more to say. I believe, as a writer, mm -hmm. that she had more to say on that. Um, and uh, but, but there's a wonderful letter at the end of this from from um, Zaza, who says, um, "And we won't have any more um, axe felling moments if, when we meet mm -hmm. again," which I like a lot. This is a very cool question because it's coming live from the American Library in Paris. So this is like technological revolution <laughs> in central London. Bizwamit asks, well, he says, hello, that was great. And I was wondering if you could talk about the ideas of transcendence, as Deborah mentioned mm. in this book. I could return back to that. Mm. Go ahead. Well, I think that transcendence is overrated and we should all be trying to be imminent. <laughs> I think embodiment is the way to go. And uh, and but you know we don't even, why why even stick with the dichotomy? Maybe there's a way to to deconstruct, you know, imminence mm -hmm. and transcendence, and and maybe find transcendence through imminence. I don't know. I'm just talking nonsense at this point. <laughs> Deborah, it was really your your. Uh... Uh, it's such a long conversation, okay. um, but, 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 I, but I agree. I agree with Lauren. Um, I don't actually, um, to, to the distinguished questioner. Yes, in the box. I, I don't, in, in the box. I don't quite understand what she, exactly what she means by transcendence. Because someone here, help us. Do, do you have a view of this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's that Kantian idea that, you know, the soul can transcend the body and that we are not, like, we are eternal souls and we're not bound to this stupid, stinky heavy thing we drag along all day but women are because we are smelly and women, what is it's Tertullian he says like woman is a temple built over a sewer mm, mm. so yeah that's imminence but the, 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 the worst thing was, was you know that the man can have this expanded life mm. of transcendence mm -hmm. 
So that's a whole paper. That's a whole keynote. <laughs> and, um, and uh, uh, you know, one of us has got to write it. Thank you. Um, I'm not familiar enough with Simone's writing. Is, do you think she wrote this more as a personal... From what I remember from the introduction, it was like coming to terms with her grief. Or is it written in any different way than another other style? Or is it, was it meant to be published, do you think? That is the mystery, right? We don't know what she wanted. She never went back to it, so maybe she didn't really think it should be published. But she also didn't destroy it, so clearly, you know... Writers, when when they're on their way out, and she had a little bit of warning before she was on her way out, um, will will get rid of what they don't. You know, the idea that someone could read the stuff that's not done that you don't like, like you, you know, you know what's there, you know what you wrote, I imagine. Um, and so I think the fact that she didn't destroy it, like, says that she she was okay with it it coming out. So you know, I think in that sense, yeah. But when we say put it in a drawer, mm -hmm. I mean she literally put it in a drawer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean it was in with her papers. And so when um, they were going to do the Pléiade edition of, of Beauvoir's yeah, Complete yeah. Works, which is in France, like you're canonized as a writer when this publisher, the Édition de la Pléiade, take all your collected works and publish them in leather-bound volumes yeah. with, you know, onion skin pages. She got one volume. There's like multiple volumes of everybody, all, all the men, but Simone de Beauvoir got one, one, one volume. Yeah. So there wasn't room. Um, to include Les Inseparables. Mm -hmm. Sylvie de Bonbeauvoir wanted to have it as an appendix. You know, this mm -hmm. is a little bit of unpublished goodness just to round out the collection, but they said no. Mm -hmm. So she said, fine, I will publish it independently, you know, found a publisher for it, and, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was really obstinate. She believed in this text and thought, you know, it has to be out in one, one shape or form. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we have a final question on Zoom. I think mm -hmm. it's a nice question to end on, which is from Helena who um, said, so hello, hello. Um, she said to both of you, what was the first um, Beauvoir that you read? Mm. How did she make her way into your life? La femme rompue, the woman destroyed. God. <laughs> that was at Barnard, I think like sophomore year of Barnard in French class. And it was so, talk about angry, oh my God. <laughs> this woman just like tramps and stamps back and forth around her apartment smoking and fuming over her husband's infidelity. It's great. <laughs> um, I think it probably was the second sex. So it wasn't of my generation, you know, but it was, it was part of my feminist library. And, um, and I found it immensely moving. Which is strange because because it, you know it's, it's a work of anthropology, of sociology, of philosophy. It's a very dense it's a very dense work. Um, and then onto the novels, a woman destroyed. Yes, so there she's working out. She was incredibly brave, Beauvoir. You know, she's she's working out her feelings about her relationship with Sartre, her open, their deal, their open relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, given that are you, she, she wasn't, she wasn't frightened of making herself vulnerable because she 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 was such a um, a tough intellectual. She was so clever. But imagine Sartre reading that. You know, I, I I think about these things. They they you know, what did he have to say about that? I wonder. <laughs> um, so yes, A Woman Destroyed is a very good title. Mm -hmm. I think a good title for The Inseparables would be Disobedience. Mm -hmm. You just want to be the publisher. The I just want to be the publisher. Can we have a big round of applause? <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.